made right. I titled this morning's message, I really struggled with this. It was like, uh, I ended up with this. I, I titled it, What's Your Obsession? What are you obsessed about in this life? And we'll talk more about that as we study this text together. Um, I don't know about you, but I have loved uh, every minute of studying the book of Romans, and it really is refreshing each and every time. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book to study together. And, and no better chapter uh, than Romans chapter 8. You know, it's been said that if the Bible is a gold ring, then the book of Romans is the diamond on that ring. And chapter 8 is the sparkle of that diamond. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a beautiful way to really to express, you know, this wonderful chapter that we're in. Uh, Across the board, you know, when you, any polls, studies that are done, Romans chapter 8 is, is really by far and away uh, the most um, remembered, um, quoted, and appreciated uh, chapter in all of the Bible um, as, as a chapter as a whole. There's other verses, obviously, you know, John 3, 16, you know, the 23rd Psalm, things like that. But this, this particular chapter, um, in the New Testament in particular, is, is the chapter that most people find some kind of root in or allude to more than any other chapter. And so uh, it's an exciting chapter to study. And more important, it's, a, it's exciting to understand why. And I think that's where, you know, taking this book in context really helps us to, to appreciate that. And we'll, we'll tackle that again today here as we read. We'll pick it up in verse 2. We'll read through verse 13, and then we'll pray for here a moment um, that the Lord would just bless this time in the Word. It says this in verse 2, and I'm reading again from the NLT, the New Living Translation. It says, and because you belong to Him, it says, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about the sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about the things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do, for if you live by its dictates, you will die. 
But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that your word is living. Thank you that it's alive. Thank you that it's active. Thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, we pray that, Lord, you would use it today to cut away the sin from our life. That each of us today, not just theologically as we read this text, but that practically, experientially, Lord, we would, we would understand, God, your purpose, your plan for our lives. That the way that we, we think about your word, Lord, is so important. Because, Lord, it, it's the process at which you bring change into us. That's why the Apostle Paul would tell us in the book of Romans to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so, Lord, I thank you for these that are here today in this sanctuary, those that would be watching online from home, that, God, you would transform our mind. That's what we've come to do, is to be changed from glory to glory. We, we love you. We pray for this day. We pray, Lord, for those that are sick, those that are hurting, Lord, whether it be physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, all the things that go on in this world, Lord, that we struggle with, God, that you would meet the needs of your church today, that you would encourage your bride, Lord, that you would wash us and sanctify us afresh. Uh, Lord, we want to lift up uh, Dominic to you this morning. Uh, there's so many like him, Lord, that are, that are dealing with physical things today. God, we pray that you would just continue to heal his body, that you'd protect him, uh, Lord, that you would guide the hands of his physicians. But Lord, that he would know today your peace and your comfort and your joy. That no matter what, Lord, he's going through, God, you've made a promise and you're ever faithful to that promise that you'd never leave us nor forsake us, Lord. Father, for everyone who's going through difficult times, we pray for those that are in Ukraine today, those who are even in Russia, uh, Lord, that in no way have a desire for war, that God, you would visit them in a supernatural way today. Thank you for the church that's there, the church around the world that uh, is flooding the borders with humanitarian care. God, thank you that we can be your hands and your feet in this world. And Lord, we just ask you to give us direction. We know we, we can't serve everybody, but Lord, each of us can serve somebody. And so Lord, we ask you to lead us and guide us as we talk about the, the role of your Holy Spirit here in chapter eight. God, we pray that God, you would have your way in each of our lives, that we'd bring glory to your name. We love you. We thank you for your grace, where sin does abound, Lord, thank you that grace does even all the more. May that grace change us, Lord, today. We give you all the praise and the glory as we pray in Jesus' name. And we all agreed saying amen. 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 Again, we're blessed that you're here. You know, interesting, up to this point um, in the book of Romans, there's only, Paul's only mentioned uh, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit two times. And here in, in chapter eight, he'll, he'll mention, you know, uh, the Spirit 20 some odd times. And I, I think just in starting this study, that's important for you to understand because the victory that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 that's realized in chapter 8 is, has nothing to do with human effort. It has to do with living in the life of the Spirit. And so, so, so important, you know, for us to understand as we go through this. You know, as we studied uh, last week, you know, in chapter 8, verse 1, you know, it began with the, the thought of there's therefore now no condemnation. If you were with us uh, 
There's no downward judgment. There's no extreme judgment that comes from God. And it's interesting, as I shared, that it's probably one of the most mistranslated uh, passages in all the Bible, because as it was stated, it, it should say, there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus, and it should be a period. That, that's, how, that's how it was given in the original language. But the translators, because of what they saw in verse 4, thought, well, what Paul meant was what he wrote in verse 4, he also applied in verse 1. But again, that's a mistranslation. That's not what the text said. And a text can never mean what a text never meant. And so as you study this, it's important that we get that. And, and again, if you don't get that, it really will mess you up. And, and it has so many people. I've had so many conversations, even from last week to this week, because of the struggle that people have in understanding Romans chapter 7 and the struggle that exists within our flesh. And then what does it truly mean to, to walk and to live in the Spirit of God? And again, there's, there's no comma there. It, it's a period. And I love when you look at Romans chapter 8 in context, you know, it begins with what? No condemnation. And the chapter ends with what? No separation. Two things that are very important to the believer. Two theological arguments that exist all the time, right? People want to say, is it once saved, always saved? Or can you lose your salvation? Can you fall away? You know, these are, these are great theological questions. And Paul answers it to really in the most certain way when you think about it, you know, here in Romans chapter 8, that if you're in Christ Jesus, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation, okay, period. And guess what? There is no separation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you cannot be separated from him. I did a memorial service, you know, yesterday, and again, you remind the family, you know, what Paul would write to the church in Thessalonica, you know, uh, what Paul would write to the church at Corinth, you know, to be absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. You know, God doesn't see, you know, it as death. He sees it as, if anything, it's sleep. <clears throat> you close your eyes, this side of heaven, and guess what? As soon as you open them up, what are you looking at? Jesus, face to face, you know. No separation. That's why the 23rd Psalm is so profound. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for what? Thou, what, art with me. Yeah. And that's what makes Romans so, so powerful for us. And yet, you know, it, it's really in light of what makes it so profound is it comes on the heels of Romans 7. It's kind of that, that expression. You probably heard this with regard to the gospel. Gospel means what? Good news, right? Well, why is it considered good news? There has to be bad news, right? What's the bad news? And Paul walks through it, you know, in the book of Romans. The bad news is all have what? Sinned and done what? Fallen short of the glory of God, right? And the wages of sin, unfortunately, is what? It's death. But in chapter 6, he said, but, 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 but. The free gift of God is eternal life. Where? Working harder, doing more? He said, no. In Christ Jesus. See, here's the problem that we have. We talk about the key words in the book of Romans, justification and sanctification. You know, we get that theologically, but we don't always get it practically, and we don't always get it experientially. I mean, it's one thing to go, okay, I get it. You know, it says it, but to sense it and to know it and to feel it, especially in light of the fact that if we're all honest with ourselves today, has anybody here conquered sin completely? Is there anybody that's completely you know, sinless, and you go, no, 
We still struggle, just like the Apostle Paul. I mean, look what he said there in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. We get this. He says, I don't really understand myself for what I want to do, and I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Can you relate to that? He says, instead, I do what I hate. That's what makes Romans 8 such wonderful news, is the realization of what he's experiencing in, in Romans chapter 7. He understands the bad news. 47 times, church, 47 times, he, used, he has an I problem in chapter 7, you could say, because he uses personal pronouns, I, me, my, and he just, he's just he's going, I, I struggle, I, I sin, I blow it, I fail, I, I fall short, I, 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 I. And what ends up happening? You look there in verse 24, Romans chapter 7, he says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Have you ever said that? You ever come to that, that realization in your own life when you look at what God desires from us? It says, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? But no sooner, no sooner did Paul have that thought. Does verse 25 come to mind? What does he say? You know, I thank who? God. I thank God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. Yeah, and you think about that because it's that thought of, you know, people go, well, what does it take to be saved? What, what does it take? So I'm asking you that. What does it take to be saved? Is it based on the things that you do or is it based upon what Christ has done for you? Remember, you know, as Paul starts you know, in the book of Romans, he's, you know, he's bringing this argument that, you know, the reason that Abraham was considered a friend of God, the reason that David was a man after God's own heart were simply for the fact that they were chosen of God and that God, you know, God considered them and called them a friend because they simply did what? Believed God. They trusted God. You want to become a friend of God? See, we get lost in this concept that, well, I've got to do more. I've got to give more. I've got to serve more. I've got to, I, 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 I. Romans chapter 7. Until what? Somebody serves a little bit more than you do. Somebody gives a little bit more than you do. Someone, you know, does everything better than you do. It always reminded me, you know, I always liked watching the Indianapolis 500 growing up. And they would call it, you know, the guy on the bubble. You know who the guy on the bubble is? You know, because in the field, they could only have, like, say, they determined 32 cars. And if you qualified 32nd, guess what? You were on the bubble, right? Because you could get knocked off at any time and you could get, you could get replaced. So whoever that, that car. And that's how it is in religion. You're always on the bubble. I share with you all the time. You know, I have the privilege periodically of talking with a, you know, a, a person who is religious that's not a believer, that's not a Christian, whether that's a, a Mormon, a Jehovah Witness, could be, you know, whatever other faith, you know, that exists out there. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. There is no other means in which man can be saved. So every other religion, in the truest sense, is a false religion. And I'll ask people, I go, how do you get saved? How do you know you're going to heaven? And most of the time, with no assurance, they go, well, I, I hope I, 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 I sincerely, I, I hope, I hope I, I hope I've done enough. That's so sad. So sad. Because the basis of our salvation has never been on, on if we did enough. The basis of our salvation is that God did enough. That's what Paul was saying, is that God sent his son. Where, where we failed in our flesh and where our flesh was weak, God's wasn't. Jesus Christ, completely God and completely man, came, lived, died, and rose again, just as he said, defeated sin and death. 
You know? And so you look at this and it's like, I go, okay, now all of a sudden, you know, why is that so important? Why is it so important to comprehend all this? Because like I said, <laughs> we understand the concept of condemnation, you know, and again, as we were looking at, you know, verse one last week, you can't really move forward until you wrap your mind around this. If, if it said, which it didn't say this, but many of our translations say it. I believe it, it, was a, it was a translation error. They put a comma where there should have been a period. And, when they, and if you read it with a comma, look at the insecurity that it'll breed, if we're going to be honest. Therefore, now, there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus, comma, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Does that give you comfort? You go, well, yeah, if you do everything in the spirit all the time. You know, I was sitting in a chair putting my shoe on today, speaking in some unknown language. I, I got to believe that it probably wasn't the most healthiest of languages because I was in pain. And then how many got frustrated with somebody coming to church today? They're on the road. Somebody passed you. It wasn't me because you were here before me. So it had to be somebody else. But somebody passed you on the road and you had either a bad thought or you made an unkind gesture. Some of you, you know, don't, don't admit that, but I mean, you know, you go, those are, those are struggles. And you go, Man, and I, Pastor Mike, and I just don't get it because I got up this morning. I was so excited about church. I was praying and I, I did some of my morning devotionals. You know, I sought the Lord and everything was just good until people, until people. Then it's like, they messed up the whole thing. Church would be great if it wasn't for the people, you know. If it could just be me and God. And then you see people that do that, right? They go, oh, I don't go to church because of the people, but I just, me and God. <laughs> You're going, oh my gosh. You go, but I get it. I, I totally understand it. You go, but we all fail. We all sin. See, it didn't say, you know, Paul didn't say, there's therefore no condemnation for them that, that don't fail that those that don't get tripped up, that don't, you know, blow it periodically. What he's talking about is it's, there is therefore no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus, period. End of story. We want to sit there and argue with God that, well, God, what about the person? I mean, you've had it people. What about the, what about the, you know, the Aborigines? Uh, what about those people that never, you know, you go, we always want to argue about what we don't know. I always like what Mark Twain said. He goes, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that, that worry me. He goes, it's the parts that I do understand. You know, and, and it, really is, it really is true. Because you think about that. If there's only no condemnation for them that walk in the Spirit, what's that say about the rest of us? If that was what it was saying. It's not saying that, but that's what the impression that it becomes. What would it cause you to do? It would cause you to look inward, wouldn't it? If you think about that, there's no condemnation for them that do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Then every day of your life, you'd be looking at who? You. You'd be going, did I do this? Did I do this? Did I do this? Did I do this? Did I not do this? Did I not do this? And that's what Paul's going to be talking about in Romans chapter eight. But no, go back to chapter seven. And what does he say? He's going, oh, miserable man that I am. Who will deliver me? And as soon as he comes to that conclusion, like I said, how, how, what is, how long does it take for someone to get saved? Paul would write, you know, that if we, what, if we 
believe in, in, our, in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, thou shalt be saved. I tell you, you know, the, the difference between heaven and hell is 18 inches. The difference between your head and your heart. It doesn't even have to come out of your mouth. That's how fast a person can be saved. You could be sitting right here right now and you could be going, oh God, save me a sinner. Save me a sinner. And God knows your heart, just like the thief on the cross. And he could say to you and whisper in your ear, today you'll be with me in paradise. And you go, so how, how, what does a person have to do? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, no, they got to, it's got to do more than that. See, that's what, that's what people do. That's the struggle. And you begin to look inward. You got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. And yet it says, there is therefore no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus, period. And that word condemnation, again, in the strongest terms, it means downward judgment. Judgment from God himself. Like I said, Paul never said there wasn't failure. He didn't say, you know, that there wasn't uh, any longer the law of reaping and sowing. There still is. Those still exist. He was just saying there's no judgment left. And why isn't there? Because it was paid for 100% at the cross of Christ. And so for Paul, all of a sudden he's, you know, again, up to the point in Romans 7, that's why he's going, I, I, I. Up until the point of the cross and his realization of what Jesus did, the finality of the cross, Paul was looking inward the same way you and I will look inward. But when Jesus becomes the solution to your problem, to your sin, it's all done. And there was in that moment, Paul, you know, as he's going, who, who will deliver me from this body of death? It was like instantaneous. You know how you have those moments with God? You, 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 you cry out to God and you say something and he, he's answering you before you've even got out the words of what your, your cry or what your complaint might be. And it's like exactly that that happened for the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. Who will deliver me? And all of a sudden, in the same, well, it's only by number of verses, right? It was just the next verse. He goes, same, same breath. He goes, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. And because he's given us the victory, then he goes on. That's the, the sad thing about having chapters. Paul didn't write it with chapters. So you lose that thought because it's really one flowing thought. You know, who will deliver me from, you know, the sin. He goes, and thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. And he goes, and so therefore there now is no condemnation. There's no judgment from God because the victory's in Christ. It's not what I do. It's not what I failed to do. It's not what I've done or what you've done. It's what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And he, now he can rest. And you and I can rest in that. See, there's going to be people go, well, you know, Judgment day. And I shared this with you. There is a judgment day. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, two chapters you can look at. There is a, it's called the Bema seat, right? There's a, there is a judgment seat. It's the judgment that we see more at a sporting event. You know, the, obviously Corinth was the home of the Olympics. In Greece, you think of this. And, and to think that we're going to stand before God one day at the Bema seat. And we're going to be rewarded for the things that we did. The things that we did for God. But our sin, thank God, was what? It was paid for on the cross. Not just your past sin, not just your present sin, but your future sin. And like I shared with you last week, so when God looks at you, he doesn't see sin 
at all. No sin at all. And see, this is the thing that's flooding Paul's mind is this understanding. As someone who understood the law and who sought to do what? To keep the law. He didn't say that the law was a bad thing. He didn't, there was not, people, the law is no good. No, the law is wonderful. The problem is I can't keep it, nor can you. So what does the law become? The law becomes just simply a mirror that shows me my failure. It's what seeks to bring condemnation into our life. But Jesus kept it perfectly. And so we understand, yeah, there's a judgment, but it's a judgment unto reward. But the world that we see in Revelation chapter 20 is going to stand before God one day at another judgment. Not the same judgment. There's a believer's judgment, the Bema seat. And then there's the great white throne judgment, which is for non-believers. Where they have their, like people go, I'll take my chances with God. Go ahead. You know, go ahead. And what's he going to say to you on that day? Depart from me, you workers of inequity. I never knew you. Why? And you go, well, just what we've studied in Romans. For all have what? Sinned. And without perfection, there's, there's two ways to make it to heaven. Either keep the law perfectly. Has anybody ever done that? No. Or Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of works, which any man can boast. It is the gift of God. Yeah, but if you think you can keep the law, and, that's, and people think that, they go, oh, I've kept the law. Really? Well, lying this is a commandment that you weren't supposed to break. You just broke that one, you know? And that's enough, and sadly, because all it takes is one sin, because God is perfect, right? For all have sinned means you've missed the mark of perfection. That could be just one sin. And it could be, it doesn't even have to be an outward action. It could just be an attitude of your heart. You go, wow, God's got a pretty high standard. Yeah, it's called perfection. So look there in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. So I think then you start to understand, you know, what he's getting to. And he says in verse 2, and he says, and because you belong to him, so you can see the flow of this, and the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Okay. So when Jesus, remember, goes into that grave, he paid the penalty of our sin, right? Sin's power was broken. How do we know it was broken? By the resurrection. It says the same power, Paul writes, that, was, that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's working in you and I. We have that same power, resurrection power in our lives. And so, you know, like I said, Paul you know, uses, like I said, in, in Romans chapter 7, a lot of personal pronouns you know, to really explain what he was going through here. But in Romans chapter 8, he's not using I, me, my any longer, is he? He's, he's switched from, you know, it being personal to what it is now in the spirit. There's a difference there. When he was trying to live according to the law, and any person that's trying to live according to the law, what do you have to tell people? Well, I do this, I do this, I do this, I, 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 I right? You go, but what do you do when you're walking in the spirit? What do you do when you're living in the spirit? You're not going, well, I did this for God. I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. That stops, doesn't it? What is our boasting in now? What does Paul say? In Jesus, right? Jesus loves me. You know, even little kids get it, right? Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. You go, what do you start doing that? Well, it's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus said. Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus did. People, oh, God, you're such a fanatic. You know, you know, I mean, sure, you have to do something. And you go, no. 
Well, I have something. You have something to believe. Take God at his word to trust God. And when we do that, what does he do? He says he accounts that. He reckons that to be what? Righteousness in our life. To believe God. Because it doesn't merely just mean head knowledge. To believe means what? To act upon, to rely upon, and to trust in. You go, yeah, it'll start governing. That's why the title today, What's Your Obsession? What are you obsessed with? It's pretty safe to say that the Apostle Paul became obsessed with God. That's what happened in his life. And you can, and you can tell in your own life what you're obsessed with when, you know, we say this about, you know, who we really are. Who you really are is who you are when no one's looking, right? But think about your obsession. When your mind is free to do whatever it wants to do and roam wherever it wants to roam, where does it go? Does it go to the things of God or does it go to the pleasures of this life? Does it go to the things of this world? See, because we have control over that. And so for the Apostle Paul, for Jesus, I mean, what did Jesus do? What did he say? Because, you know, to be a Christian is to be what? Christ-like, right? And Jesus was led, you know, of the Spirit, right? says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he got into the wilderness, what did he do? He was hungry, but he said, but the word of God says, right? You know, when the devil took him up on the pinnacle of the, of the temple and told him to throw himself off, he said, for the word of God says. When he shows him all the riches of the world, he says, you know, if you bow down, he says, you know, I'll give you all these things. He says, the word of God says. Yeah, the word of God, the word of God. He didn't even rely on his own self. He trusted in God. He submitted himself, you know, Philippians says, though he was God, says, you know, with regard to equality, a thing to be grasped, says he humbled himself, right? He relied on the Holy Spirit. He trusted in the Holy Spirit. He would say even himself, he says, you know, Thomas, remember, Thomas goes, show us the Father. And he's like, Thomas, have I been with you this long? He goes, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. And he said, the things that I speak, he said, I only speak as I hear my Father Speaking those things and the things that I do. He goes, I'm just watching my dad. Whatever I see my dad doing, that's, that's what I do. And you go, that's the call of the Christian life. Is what do we see God doing? You know, I mean, people caught on years ago. What would Jesus do? Bracelets. You know, they went all around the world, right? What would Jesus do? You go, it's a great question. You know, but we don't really have to go, what would Jesus do? Because we have the Bible. We can go, what did, what, what did Jesus do? You go, he did. And then we could answer that in whatever situation that we're facing ourselves and then do what Jesus did. You know, what would Jesus have us do? You know, might, might say at that point, but I love this because as you look at verse two, you're seeing this transition from chapter seven of I, I, I to, you know, the Holy spirit. Like I said, 20 times, Paul will make a reference to life and the spirit here. What a contrast from moving from the focus of our life. And think about your own life. Think about what your life was before Jesus. It was all about you, right? You, in a sense, were your own God. You know, we probably didn't look at it that way, but that's really who was on the throne. Who was on the throne of your life? You were, I was. And then all of a sudden, we become born again. Our focus moves from ourself to God. The Holy Spirit steps in. You know, maybe the easiest way, like I said, to explain this, uh, the power of sin, you know, you think about because it's a law here. The power of sin is like the power of gravity, right? What does gravity do? It keeps you down, right? And then you think about the law of 
of aerodynamics. You think about an airplane. I mean, you know, you think about how much an airplane can weigh, right? Tons. And you think, how does that thing get off the ground? And it's called the law of what? Aerodynamics, right? The law of aerodynamics supersedes the law of gravity. The law of gravity still exists, right? But the law of aerodynamics is greater than that with the right amount of thrust or power. Well, you think about that, you know, the, the law, you could say, you know, in one sense is like gravity. What does it do? It doesn't give life at all. It just keeps us down. We're trying to, we're trying to fly. And what is it doing? It's just holding us down. But when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, the law of gravity is still there. The law is still there. But now a greater law, a law that supersedes, the law of the Spirit is the one that gives us life. It gives us the ability to rise above and fly. Romans uh, 8, 3 goes on. It says, And the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. Jesus, completely God, completely man. It says, And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sin the Lamb of God who came to do what? To take away the sin of the world. The perfect Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God who kept the law perfectly. And he did this to do what? So that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. What did Jesus do? He died in my place. He died in your place. That in him, we could become the righteousness of God. It says, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. And like I said, there's really two points that the, the Paul uses there uh, with regard to the law. First, again, the law can speak of the law of Moses, the written laws, you know, the do this, don't do that. And does the law ever justify a person? No. It only condemns. You know, like I said, it's like a mirror. It only reveals what we do wrong. It shows us where we've sinned, where we failed, where we've fallen short. Here's the problem. Can the law fix a person? No. Yeah can't fix us. And this is where the apostle Paul found himself. Remember, he realized covetousness, the sin of covetous, the 10th commandment isn't necessarily an external sin. It's a sin of the heart. And when he realized that sin originates in the heart, he goes, I'm dead. He goes, cause I, mean, I know I may, maybe I haven't acted on it. I didn't say, you know, I didn't murder you, but I wanted to, you know, he's like, man, I, 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 I said, I hated you, but in my heart, I didn't say it out loud. And he's like, I'm still guilty before God. He realized that the law can't fix a person. All the law can do is condemn us. And yet there's, there's another reference there with regard to the law. And he talks about both sides, the law of our old nature and the law of the spirit here, that it's also a driving force that motivates us and controls us. The law of our flesh seeks to, to motivate us, to, to do sinful things, to control us, to keep us in sin. And the law of the spirit is doing what? It's prompting us. You ever been prompted by the Holy Spirit? You know, remember Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he said, he'll convict the world of sin and, and the church of what? Of righteousness. So here's the, the beauty of it. You have the Holy Spirit living in your life. He doesn't condemn you, but he comes alongside to do what? He's like, not so good. You ever had that, you know, from the Holy Spirit? You hear that, just, it's, you know, you hear this, this almost this, you go, what was that? And you go, oh, it doesn't even have to have be an audible word, right? So it's not like does the Holy Spirit always speak to you like, Mike, don't do this. You just hear this, no, nah. you know, you're, it's like, 
okay, I, I, I get that. You know, it's like that look from your mom. No words, just the look. And somehow you were able to read, cross that line, die. You know, you go, I, I get it. You know, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. And he says, Jesus said, if you love me, he said, obey my commandments. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate. He says, he will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit, who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him, because the world isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him, because he lives with you now. And then he was talking to the disciples before the cross, and he says, and later, he'll be in you. And then he went on in verse 26, and he says, but when the Father sends the advocate, he says, as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything that I have told you. I love that about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't even speak on his own accord. He just brings to remembrance the word of God. And here's the beauty of it. And many of you, if I've had this conversation with personally, that you've said, hey, you know, what's really cool about that, Pastor Mike, is sometimes the Holy Spirit quickens passages that I've not even read. And then you read it later and you had this do, 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 do. You went, how did I get that? And you go, well, let me just ask you this. Does the Holy Spirit know the word of God? There you go. You go, so when he quickens things, I mean, the beauty of it is when you and I read it and the Holy Spirit quickens it, what do we do? We have this confirmation, right? We have this testimony within us. You go, wow. But the Holy Spirit's not bound by my knowledge of God. That's not what he said. He goes, what you know about God uh, the Holy Spirit will quicken that to your remembrance. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said, the beauty of the Holy Spirit is when he comes into your life, he says, he will remind you of all the things that I've said. He comes based on what Jesus is desirous to do in our life. Because sometimes the Holy Spirit's going to tell you things that you don't want to do, isn't he? <laughs> it's not like it just goes along with us, you know. But guess what? The, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. Like people go, you know, I'm really worried, Pastor Mike, about, you know, praying for spiritual gifts because, you know, I don't want to be in the grocery store talking to the checker and all of a sudden, you know, the Holy Spirit just, you know, starts speaking in tongues through me, you know, at that point. And they go, you never have to worry about that because people will say that. They go, I couldn't help myself. No, that's because you don't have self-control, but don't blame that on God. But because God gives us self-control, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. He's never going to force you into a situation. That's one of the, the great things about this particular chapter as we study it is we play a, a, a definite role you know in how the holy spirit lives and works through our lives verse 5 there romans chapter 8 it says those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things but those who are controlled by the holy spirit think about the things that please the spirit so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death but letting the spirit control your mind but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. I mean, we get this. Before we were saved, you know, we thought a lot about gratifying ourselves, didn't we? That might have been the highlight, you know, of our life. We did it naturally. We didn't even have to think about it. And yet, you know, Jesus answers that. You know, he, he definitely reminds us of that truth. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says this, he says, therefore, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Those are the things you worried about before you came to Jesus, right? You don't have to worry about them afterwards. We remind people that all the time. 
What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? It says, for all these things, what does he say? What does he say? For all these things, the what? Gentiles, they seek. What is he saying? That's the natural mindset of a Gentile, of a non-believer. What are we going to wear? What are we going to eat? What are we going to worry, worry, worry about everything? And what did Jesus say? He said, verse 32, for all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. And then what does he go on to say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, and all these other things will be added. So when you're worrying about, it, it's, it's really a slap in the face to God himself. And you go, but we do. But Jesus is reminding us, he says, you don't need to do that. That's a choice that you get to make. You can't say, well, it's just how I am. You go, it is how you are. But he, you know, so I love that expression. God loves you just like you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. Amen. He, he wants to change that in us. Verse 6 goes on in Romans 8. It says, so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Wow. We have a choice. Again, Sermon on the Mount. Verse 33 there, Matthew 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, and all these things shall be added to you. The bottom line is there's only two laws. That, that's what all this is about. There's only two laws. The law of the flesh and the law of the spirit. Our lives are subject to one law or the other. They can't be subject to both simultaneously. You're either in one or you're in the other. And that's why Paul understood uh, the law of the flesh. Yeah, it governed his life. Like I said, he, he bragged about it, you know, as a person under the law, that he, that he kept it as perfectly as it could be kept. And yet, no matter how hard he tried, he failed. That's what Romans 7 is ultimately all about. The problem wasn't, uh, again, his effort. The problem was his flesh. His flesh was incapable of keeping the law. The problem wasn't with the law, like I said, because the law was perfect. The problem was his flesh. And because of the nature of sin and the fact that each of us is born into sin, it's our natural bend. I mean, you know, growing up, did your parents ever take you to a sin school? You know, like, hey, honey, you know, you're doing really good. We're going to teach you to, uh, this Saturday. The YMCA is having a, a clinic on lying. We're going to take you down there and teach you how to lie. A pock picketing class next, you know, two weeks from today. You go, no, they don't teach you any of those things. You could do that naturally. It's living holy and righteous. How do we do that? We can't even do that, Paul says, by trying. We do that by surrender. See, here's the deal. You know, God wants us to live victoriously, but not just positionally. And I think this is where a lot of us get stuck. Like I said, we get it theologically, you know, that, yeah, God wants me to live a victorious life, but, you know, but like Paul, you know, I, I, I relate to Romans chapter 7. But Paul didn't say that his life ended in defeat. He said it ended in victory. He said, thanks be to God, who what? Who gives us the victory. See, we can read this and get it all wrong. Go, see, we all just continue to struggle. We all continue to sin. And no, we do. We do struggle with sin. We struggle against sin. You know, but we don't have to live in sin. We don't have to be bound by sin. Sin is something in a sense we step in, right? And when you step in it, I mean, if you stepped in, you know, something in your backyard, what would you do? Would you just walk in the house and just, you know, wipe your, your foot on the carpet then and just keep walking? You go, no, you either take your shoe off outside or you what? You cleanse it, you clean it. 
And Scripture says, what do we do? We, when we fail, when we sin, we confess our sin. When we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so he, he talks about, again, something that, and as we close here, I want you to think about this. How do we live victoriously? And I, I shared with you the title of today's message was Obsession. Because it's interesting, you know, there in verse 6, when you look at, you know, what he's declaring there, he says, so letting your sinful nature control your mind, control your mind, leads to what? Death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So here, our mind. Our mind is probably the greatest weapon in one sense that we have. You know, obviously we know from Ephesians 6, the, the only weapon, offensive weapon that we have is, is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. But you think about having the mind of the Spirit. What are, by definition, what that means, you know, the mind of the Spirit is our ability to seek, to, to serve, to strive, you know, directing our mind. It means to discipline your mind. It means to obsess to obsess your mind. You, you've ever thought about that, that term obsession or the things that you're obsessed with? They dominate your thought. That's what he's saying. You want to live in victory is let God dominate your thoughts. Be obsessed with God. Become obsessed with God. He says, you know, like I said, to be carnally minded, what is that? That's, that's the things of the flesh. But to be spiritually minded is to think of the things of God. Remember that, that old expression that says they were so heavenly minded, they were of no earthly good? You know, really, in reality, we're never going to be of any earthly good until we what? We become heavenly minded. That's why Jesus said to set our, our minds on the things that are up above and not the things of the earth. And like I said, when you study Jesus' life, I mean, he did everything being led by the Holy Spirit. Everything that he did. He sought the mind and the will of God. And we, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. He's, he's placed that within us. That's why we know what the struggle is, because we go, I know what God wants me to do, but, and we, and we can blame it, just say on the flesh, but you go, but we have the power that's in Christ Jesus to do what God has called us to do. Not only was the penalty broken at the cross, but the power of sin was broken at the cross. The power of sin over my life and your life. We can live victoriously because we have and we are as believers. If you're in Christ today, you have the Holy Spirit. That's why you can say what, like Paul, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world, right? You know, the life that I live, Paul would say, you know, in the flesh, I, I live now by faith in the Son of God. I, I love when I think about, you know, Jesus' own words, you know, John chapter 5. Verse 30, Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing. Isn't that amazing? He says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Like I said, he told Thomas, you know, in John 7, 7 through 11, he says, if you'd known me, he said, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and you've seen him. He says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? 
Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak from my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Do you see that? Obsessed. Is it safe to say that Jesus was obsessed with the Father's will? That, that's what meant more to him than anything else. In, in your life and mine, that, that's where it begins. No, no one forces you to be obsessed with anything. God doesn't even force you to be obsessed with him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? You'll obey me. We, it's our choice. It's the call that we get to make in our life. And that's where the freedom comes in. See, again, it's not, you know, oh, I have to do this. You go, no, to love God isn't something you have to do. We get to do it. Loving God is where we're set free. Verse seven in Romans eight, it says, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. Reminds me of Galatians 5.17 where Paul would write this, the sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you're not free to carry out your own good intentions. So what is it that he's telling us? The spirit lust. I mean, this is amazing. You, know, you think about this, the spirit lusts against the flesh, but then it says, you know, that the, the flesh lusts against the spirit, but the spirit lusts against the flesh. You go, the spirit lusts against the flesh. You ever thought about that? Why, why would the spirit lust against the flesh? What it's lusting after, the, now the flesh, we get it. The flesh is lusting after the spirit because what does the flesh want? What does our flesh want? It wants love. It wants joy. It wants peace. It wants goodness, right? That's what it wants. You go, but the spirit is lusting after the flesh? And you go, yes. After what? Preeminence. Because the flesh has first thought. The flesh, you might say, is the captain of our team. And every decision goes through him. And so the Spirit's going, you know, I want preeminence. That's what I want. The Spirit is longing for preeminence in our life to control so that we do the right things, you know, that we're, we're being led in the right direction. And there's a battle, like I said, that, that takes place there. And Paul then, he concludes, we'll just read this out through verse 13. He says, but you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you so that even though your body will die because of sin, the spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. And I remember the, the very first time I ever heard this teaching, I was 1981. I was at Hume Lake at a junior high camp as a, as a counselor, as a volunteer. And that the speaker in, in kind of summing this up, he, he looks at the audience and he goes, you know, you got you have a choice to make today. And I'm sitting in the front row, I'm taking notes, you know, this, I'm writing down everything this guy says. And he says, you get to choose. Do you want to be a squash or a redwood? <laughs> squash, or he goes, it takes six months to be a big old giant squash. It takes hundreds of years to be a redwood. 
And he goes, so the key here is, is, is again, talking about obsession, that you obsess your heart, your mind on the things of God. You know, don't worry about just trying to grow really fast, you know, and become a big old squash, but just dedicate yourself, plod, just walk with God, enjoy him, read his word, pray and seek his face, serve him. And in, in, in time, you know, you'll become so strong. And I remember, you know, writing that down, because basically what he was saying is that we're all cultivating something in our lives, aren't we? And he's going, what you need to do, if you really want to be strong, if you really want to be a redwood, you know, not a squash, and cultivate, you know, your relationship with Jesus Christ. And it, and it makes so much sense. You know, it's like, I, I like watching my wife, you know, she plants flowers. We have a, a garden. And, and, you know, weeds can be pretty too. I mean, weeds take no effort at all, do they? I mean, weeds, you just, birds come and do their thing. And next thing you know, there's a weed growing in, in your yard. I mean, but if you want to cultivate flowers, I mean, she's out there with bug spray. She's out there with, you know, fertilizer. She's out there pulling weeds. And you think about that, you know, the Holy Spirit is wanting to cultivate flowers in our life, right? But it takes some effort on our part. It takes some cultivation. It takes some obsession. Weeds, they're easy. You just, you know, don't have to do a thing. And yet, as we'll see as we go through this chapter, you know, there's something, you know, that God wants to bring out, you know, in each of our lives to remind us, you know, that we have a choice to make. He's made a choice. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. His desire is that, you know, we would walk with him and that we would experience the fullness of the spirit life. But yet we know there's a battle. There's still a battle. But our battle can be just, like I said, in our memory. I shared this with you a couple weeks ago. This was a little different twist. I'll read this to you and we'll close in prayer. It says, an old Cherokee Indian chief was teaching his grandson about life. And he said to his grandson, a fight is going on inside of me. He told the young boy, a fight between two wolves. The dark one is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority and ego. So as he continued, the light wolf is good. He is joy and peace and love and hope and serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. He said, the same fight is going on inside of you, my grandson, and inside of every other person on the face of this earth. The grandson ponders this for a moment. Then he asked his grandfather, he says, grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee smiled and he simply said, the one you feed. The one you feed. And it's really true. And that's what Paul's saying. What's your obsession? What are you feeding? He says, feed, feed the spirit in your life. Feed yourself on the word of God, prayer, fellowship, communion, service, all those things. You're going to grow. You're going to grow strong. Feed on anything else. And over time, it'll just take you out. It takes you down. It takes you away. You know, cultivating the life of Christ. That's what it's all about. Being obsessed with him. And you never have to worry. We, we talk to people all the time. You know, you think about it, you, the time that you've been in church here. Okay, it didn't say you couldn't have an attitude of sin. But at least I know experientially, nobody here is getting in trouble, right? It's what's going to happen is when you leave here, right? 
So there's something that we just, we get that. You know, you talk to kids about that all the time. You go, they go, oh, I get in trouble. I go, you need to come to church more. Like, What's church going to do? And I go, well, have you gotten in trouble since you've been here? And they're like, no. I go, well, might think about that. So as adults, it's the same kind of thing. You know, it's just the more we hang with God, guess what? The freer we are. The freer we are. It's when you get alone, you get away from here. You know, you get out of fellowship. You get out of the, in a sense, the, the presence of God in your life or not being aware of it is where trouble comes in. So draw close to him. That's the invitation. And he'll do what? He'll draw close to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for this chapter, which is just such an amazing chapter. Lord, and how we truly experience freedom and life, how we learn to walk with you and enjoy you. That Lord, it's the basis of that, the foundation, Lord, the root of it is all because of what you've accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. And so Lord, we thank you today afresh. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for dying and rising again for us, Lord, that we can find life in you. And I pray that every heart that's here, every heart that's at home can truly say that Jesus Christ is my Lord. And if not, I can't think of a better day to say, Lord, I need you. Save me. And in that simple thought, that simple moment, Lord, as your word declares, if we believe in our heart and we profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, thou shall be saved, Lord. Have your way, Lord, in us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The church, I'll invite you. Let's stand to our feet. We'll send you out with song. And, and if you need prayer for anything, you know, today, if you're going through something, don't, don't hurry out. We'd love to pray with you. Love on each other. It's post-COVID now. You can, you're back to hugging people, and, and uh, you don't have to social distance any longer, at least not inside here. What you do out there, you know. But be blessed as you go. Took a breath, you breathed your life in.